welcome back to Covered in Glory, where one of our managers got fired this week, and surprise, it was not Chelsea's. So before we even get into this well, week's game, well, we got on, some that, good ones for you. That is actually a genuine surprise, though, that it wasn't Chelsea's manager being fired. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. I mean, Tuchel's already on the hot seat, even as he lifts the Champions League Cup. So uh, next week's intro might be the same, but might be reversed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, good prediction. What's the betting market on that? That we uh, can talk about Chelsea's new manager next time we, we record. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I bet there's odds out there somewhere on them, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and say Tuchel's going to stay. But hey, who knows? Crazy mixed up world we live in, buddy. Well, that's true. Uh, so we're going to talk about this week's games, and we got some really good ones on tap. But I wanted to give my friend Brett, Everton fan. Uh, a chance to kind of lie down on the couch right here at the very top of the show in a very safe space, just me and Mikey Meatballs and our millions and millions of listeners, and go ahead and let's talk this out. So what did you think of the Everton firing of Rafa Benitez, and where do they go from here? Oh, man. I mean, this is uh, we're going to record for two hours today, right? That's this whole thing. I mean, how much is this no, session? No, no. How much is this session going to cost me? Am I just like, is this? I'm going to just work for free basically for the rest of the year? All right, uh, uh, let's call it like a half a raffle buyout, whatever that much is. <laughs> That's probably going to be a lot. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's this seemed so foreseeable. Um, you know, Rafa had the same problem I think that Ancelotti did. I mean, Everton as a club is a fucking dumpster fire, but um, you know that we you you get this process right where you can clearly see with Everton since a new owner, Moshiri took over is that they, they go after the shiny object, right? Ancelotti was first winner, serial winner, right? You know, but older manager who hasn't really kept up with like the new tactical changes, the different ways that teams are holding possession and pressing, he gets worse results basically than Marco Silva did. Um, And for those of you who are saying who that is the guy currently managing Fulham in the championship. Um, and then they go with Rafa and, you know, Rafa had great success in Liverpool, um, you know, hoisted some trophies there. Uh, obviously it was a little bit tense between the red and blue halves of Merseyside, uh, when he got appointed, but you know, it was supposed to be Rafa is going to come in and do his shit or he organizes the team defensively and gets him to play on the counterattack. Um, but we're kind of seeing that like those ideas, the same thing happened to Mourinho when he was with Spurs like just don't work out. And then on top of that, they did the Everton thing of like, there was no hierarchy in who was making decisions. Marcel Brands, the director of football, just like left a couple of months ago. Then Benitez, before he got his ass got shown the door, had a basically like a dust up with one of our actual rem, like remaining good players on the Everton roster and Luca Dine, and then just sold him to Aston Villa. And then he was fired like a week later. So it's just a mess. And then the funniest part was the first name that came up was Roberto Martinez, you know, fucking Everton legend, uh, actually kind of <laughs> piggybacked off the David Moyes years to take him to this really exciting fifth place finish with, with your boy, Rom, um, you know, came on loan. They kind of had Martinez's like crazy, you know, no kind of discipline possession style, but still some remnants of like the David Moyes, like defensive discipline. And they took that to fifth, but then he was pretty much terrible the minute that like the Moyes effect wore off. Um, And he not, he only didn't get the caretaker Everton job 
because it was reported that the Belgium FA came in and said that he couldn't do both jobs. <laughs> so Everton, who is 19th in the Deloitte money rankings as far as like world wealth in a club, in a soccer club, didn't get a manager because a national team said no. <laughs> that is a sign of a healthy club. You know, and then, and then it's just been hilarious. I mean, I think the most apt thing is someone on Twitter basically said it looks like Everton's bar for being manager is famous person. Um, you know, so they went with, after Martinez, you know, Frank Lampard's name has, has been floated around. Mourinho's name was floated around for like 30 minutes and they immediately turned around and shot down rumors they stayed at Roma. Um, then, then we're going to play another game. So one of the names that was floated out was Niko Kovic. Kovic. And if you don't remember him, he kind of made his name in the Bundesliga of Frankfurt, went to Bayern Munich, flamed out there. I want you to guess. This is going to be a game for you, Toby. I want you to mm-hmm. guess the year that Niko Kovic managed Bayern Munich. In, 26, oh in 2016-17, they won the league by 15 points. The following year in 2017-18, they won the league by 21 points. The year after that, in 2018-19, they won the league by two points. And then the next three years, they never won it by less than 13. What year do you think Niko Kovic managed Bayern Munich, given the Everton uh, yeah. decision-making process? Yeah, no, I don't. Hopefully, I don't need to phone a friend here because my friend would be you and you're the quiz master. Uh, but I'm going to go with the year that they won by the least amount of points. Yeah. But he still was a league ma- winning manager, which is the scary thing about Bayern Munich and why I watch more of the Premier League than the uh, Bundesliga. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, they kind of go for the guy that flamed out at Bayern. He just got fired by Monaco. Um, so it's just, it's overall, it's a mess. Like it's, it's kind of disheartening as an Everton fan. Um, it's probably great for betting markets because they're, Probably going to get their ass kicked the next couple of weeks with Duncan Ferguson, just raw riding them up and down the sideline. Um, but yeah, my club's a dumpster fire, and I really just am looking forward to the day where I can bet on their relegation odds and hope that I win some money. <laughs> well, a uh, couple of things. One, you might want to look at those relegation odds now because uh, they're not that far from the drop. <laughs> they are. I mean, if you- The markets don't have them that close, but if you look at the point totals and you look at their form and you look at the likely drop-off in the next three weeks, I mean, that future right now is not a bad ticket to hold. And I hate to tempt you with that after I said this relegation uh, race was over and we had our three teams, but I – oh, you want a hot take? Uh, Everton and Newcastle are equally likely to get relegated this year. Oh, that is is a scalding hot take. You are forgetting that Newcastle is also dumpster fire managed by Eddie Howe. But I I like the enthusiasm and I like the fact that you just want to see my club get relegated to the championship. So they're just out of my misery. It puts me out of my misery and I can forget they exist for at least a year. Yeah, I mean, as your therapist in this moment, my uh, my advice is to become a Brentford fan or a Liverpool fan and let this dumpster fire get, live in your past. Get out of this toxic relationship that's causing me so much stress. Well, it's funny. You sit, you sit there and talk about the bar to be an Everton manager as a famous person. And unfortunately, that's probably true because that rules out one of their best candidates, which might be you. Uh, after you went up 25 units in the betting market in a single month, and as I listen to you talk every week, and I'm always wowed with your the depth of your knowledge and uh, all those sorts of things. Honestly, if, if this was like an Eddie situation and they pulled you out of the crowd, like they pulled Whoopi Goldberg out of the crowd at the next game and you were the next Everton manager, would they be better or worse? I think it would be the exact same, <laughs> but only not because of me, only because of the fact that generally most managers don't make a difference. And I think 
I could probably stay out of the way enough to like not fuck them up and make them worse. <laughs> yeah, no, and I know how much you work for, so they would save a fortune there. They can, you know, <laughs> reinvest that either onto the field or at least a better spread on the training table to get these guys some better sandwiches or something. <laughs> I like this idea. I can't wait for the movie rights to get bought from you. No, when you're, when no, you're not no, on the no, show no. next week, we know that you're just in Hollywood sealing that deal. <laughs> all right so uh that is the end of our everton therapy session now let us jump into this week's games uh first one we are going to talk about is man united versus west ham man united seventh place 35 points west ham in fourth place at 37 points so this is a pretty uh pretty juicy clash it's gonna happen saturday morning at 10 a.m Man United is minus 110. The draw is plus 280. West Ham is plus 290. Uh, on the spread, Man United at minus half a goal remains at minus 110. And West Ham jumps up to minus 105. So sitting on my couch uh, watching some of these games over the last week, I think the score in the Manchester United versus Brentford game last week really flattered Manchester United. They might have won 3-1, but they were getting killed on the counterattack and actually had less XG throughout the match. Uh, De Gea bailed them out several times with some amazing kick saves. And credit to Manchester United for some strong finishing when they were given a chance. But it stood in strong contrast to their opponent, who squandered chance after chance and couldn't squeak a ball past De Gea. So I thought that game was level at worst. And to see a 3-1 win for Manchester United, I don't think accurately reflected the form in that match. Uh, on the other side of the pitch... West Ham did allow Jack Harrison to look like prime Alexi Sanchez last week, but they are getting Thomas uh, Suchek back and my guy, Kurt Zuma, which is really, I think, going to calm things down for West Ham. Ultimately, I think they are just as good as Manchester United at the moment. So if I can get even money for a draw or a West Ham win, I am hammering it. Get it? Get oh, it? puns. <laughs> Wordplay. Wordplay. <laughs> what do you got? I am with you, actually, uh, except I'm going to take it one step further. I'm going to be the adventurous one in the group. Uh, I'm going to take that plus 290 on the money line, baby. Give me those hammers. Woo! Um, look at that. I mean, honestly, I think the biggest thing is when United, I don't know about you, at least for me, United has looked worse every week that I've seen them play. And yeah. I think there's a lot of turnover uh, turnover in terms of like their back line. And it's, it's not necessarily that like Rangnick is a problem or not better than OGS or whatever. Well, the number one thing is like Rangnick, this isn't the thing he's good at, right? Like, you know, you're, you know, you're a, a wonderful podcast where you're better at running a company and Rangnick's <laughs> thing is he's a director of football. He's not a manager. And I think part of that is playing out a little bit as we see some of the choices and, starting 11 selection. But I also think that like, if we use each game as a data set, like we're just starting to see that this team isn't very good. You know, Ronaldo is looking more and more washed. Um, he wasn't really happy with being subbed off either for a center back. Um, There's kind of unconfirmed reports that like Ragnick went to the board and basically said that United's entire defensive line, like wasn't good enough to be at the club. I'm sure if that has any kernel of truth, that's not sitting very well. Um, so, I mean, they just don't look good. And we know what West Ham is. Uh, the Leeds game was really weird. Part of it was mostly because Manuel Lanzini has kind of been filling in. And, and Lanzini is a, a fun little player, but the dude is, is not part of a double pivot. He, he's not a central midfielder. He's more of a guy that you play in the attacking band. Um, but because Swiecek is out, 
And West Ham's only other senior midfielder is Mark Noble, who was also unavailable. Um, Lanzini was playing alongside Declan Rice, which is not great. Um, and I think this is so weird to say, I think Leeds is actually a little bit more suited to take advantage of a double pivot like that than United is. Um, just because Leeds has like actual really good passes in the midfield in terms of, at least in terms of Calvin Phillips, where, you know, United has McTominay and Fred. So the McFred midfield, not super overwhelming, you know, trying to move the ball through the Lanzini uh, sized hole in West Ham's defense. But the other thing I can't get over Jared Bowen, Michael's new favorite West Ham player. Um, I think he every week goes by and we've talked about the Davies rankings that like expected goal added thing where it kind of combines all the actions of a player on the pitch. Every week goes by Bowen just hangs on in fifth right behind all the Liverpool studs. Um, I think he's going to be a legitimate superstar and he is actually going to be my prophet this week. He is plus three fifty to score a goal against United. Um, and he averages 0.39 non-penalty goal or uh, 0.39 non-penalty goals per 90. Um, so essentially another way that you can kind of read that stat is he has about a 39% chance to score every week. Um, so I'm going to take the plus 350 on my new favorite superstar and, and the hammers on the money line. I like it. I like it. Some big numbers out there. But speaking of big numbers, I know that uh, extra points could go bankrupt with me running it, and I would still be a better businessman than I am a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for my prop this week, look, Manchester United, as you're pointing out, they look frustrated right now to me. Uh, Ronaldo is acting out. He's pouting. Even when his team is winning, when he gets substituted out, when he's on the pitch, he's pouting just as much. I can see this game with West Ham, uh, you know, getting Zuma and, and Suchek back, being and Declan Rice in the middle, uh, being much more physical. And I can see it getting a little chippy. And I can see the ref having to put things back together. So give me Man United over 1.5 cards at minus 130. Uh, West Ham is also plus 100 at over uh, 1.5 cards. But since United seems like a much whinier reactive club to me, I'll actually lay the odds and, and take them on this. Point. Oh, there's definitely a Bruno Fernandez like drag down yellow card coming if they're losing. So you got one in the book if they go down. <laughs> yeah, and if Ronaldo scores, he's probably getting carded for the shirt coming off. So there's another one right there. Uh, all right, so let's move down uh, a little bit further in the calendar on Saturday and pick up Southampton versus Manchester City. Southampton is 12th on 24 points. Manchester City is, of course, first at 56 points. Uh, This game is Saturday at 12.30 p.m. Southampton is plus 950. The draw is plus 500. Man City is minus 370. Uh, Man City giving up a goal and a half is minus 125. Southampton is plus 110. Uh, So I look forward to Brett also taking the long odds on this game since that seems to be his thing this week. But, you know... In a lot of ways, these Manchester City games, despite them being the league leaner, leaders, have also become the least interesting to talk about. They are Thanos at this point. They are simply inevitable. Yeah, They may have only won 1-0 versus Chelsea last week, but they thoroughly dominated that game, particularly in the first half, which was just as imbalanced as a 0-0 game can possibly get. They don't ever seem to switch off. There's no reason to think they'll start now. Southampton, on the other side, routinely gives up multiple goals to their opponents. None of whom are as good as City. Uh, And you only have to lay a little juice on that spread for the killing machine to kill again. 
So the juice doesn't scare me. Give me a minute in Chester City, minus a goal and a half at uh, minus 125. Oh, well, it's going to be boring because we're in the same spot, man. Um, it's it's kind of tempting, you know, to just kind of play devil's advocate. It's kind of tempting because Southampton actually did come to the Eddie head and uh, scored a draw with City earlier this the year. The empty head? Did you say the empty head? Yeah, the empty oh, head. I thought I heard you say the empty head. <laughs> um, but they scored a That's draw. That's all I got left is the Chelsea fans. All I got left uh, is to make fun of their attendance. You know what? I understand you're hurting. Maybe the therapy session next time should be for you. And we should talk about this, this inferiority complex that you're feeling with Chelsea and Manchester City. Yeah, next time. <laughs> hey, audience, you think you're getting off light? We still got a Chelsea game to talk about at the end. So you might <laughs> want to turn it off. You don't want to hear me on the couch. <laughs> well, before we get to that part, before people tune out <laughs> we'll finish this uh but no yeah so there is a little bit of like you know they played them tough um you know there there's some sort of thing where you know hassan hoodle is is actually a pretty good manager he's a guy that honestly if everton was looking at i wouldn't really be that upset about it um but the thing that you got to look at from that earlier season game is Rodri was out and almeric laporte their center back was out and you kind of look at City and you go like, well, who fucking cares? Like they have all these amazing attackers. Like they're one of their midfielders and one of their center backs is out. They have, you know, Fernandinho stepped in, you know, John Stone stepped in, like who cares, right? Well, the thing is, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, is guys like that make a difference, especially in a machine like City, where they are a team that relies so much on possession and they put a lot on guys deeper in the field to move the ball and keep the ball in the attacking third. And Fernandinho is basically a statue defensively at this point. Like Rodri's thing isn't like being peak Fernandinho. He runs all over the field during a counter and breaks up plays and somehow avoids getting a yellow card, even though he like horse collars somebody. Um, But Rodri and Laporte are like really important at getting the ball in the attacking third and keeping those opponents pinned back. And City didn't have those guys. Both those guys should play, um, and I think that's going to make a totally different dynamic, which is why, you know, like I said, like you said, it's Thanos at this point. City going up a goal. The question probably with City is not basically when they go up a goal. It's how many they score. Um, And it seems like because Southampton has given up in the last uh, couple months between one and two expected goal chances per match, it seems like that one and a half gives you a little bit of an edge. Um, So I'm right there with you. And then on top of that, I'm not going to do the clean sheet for you because you don't get very good odds. I'm going to do something a little out of character for me. Um, I'm going to actually take a specific scoreline. And because that that kind of Southampton defense is allowed pretty much like clockwork between one and two um, expected goal chances per match, I'm going to take a 2-0 City win as the final scoreline for plus 650. So we get a little... Wow! We're going to go for a very narrow result. But it seems like 2-0, given everything that we've laid out, is a huge part of the city range. It seems unlikely that City is going to run away with this game. It also seems unlikely that Southampton is going to scrap it out and like keep this within a goal. So I kind of like that like two-goal window. And you know, again, scoring against City seems like it's basically a fluke. I mean, James Ward-Prowse could maybe kick a free kick in from midfield or from the center line, but you know, who knows at this point with him. But I mean, that's that's kind of what I look at. There's a great range. A lot of it sits at like that two goal mark for City, and it's very unlikely to see Southampton score. So I'll take the plus six six fifty and see if I can get a hit. Yeah, West Ham to win outright an exact score in the Manchester City game. You are living life this week, my <laughs> friend. You got some pep in your step. Let's do it. Uh, 
So I was scanning the prop list and trying to find some plus number that uh, was, you know, made some sense to me. Because, like, Manchester City is just killing everybody right now. And so the odds on the actual game, as you were just talking about, aren't all that much fun to bet. I mean, you could take the spread and and get uh, a smaller negative number, but it's hard to get in the pluses and still look at, uh, you know, a team outcome. The one I found that I liked is Manchester City to win both halves is plus 160. So with the international break coming up, there's really no need to fear heavy rotation. And as we frequently talk about, Man City's third string is still super scary. So I expect them to dominate this game from start to finish. And this is a great way to get those plus odds. Uh, If you want a similar bet, but a little bit safer, Man City to score in both halves, not just win both halves, is minus 125. But even if they leak a goal, I think they could easily get two goals to cover it. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, push it up to plus 160 to win the halves outright. Well, I mean, that's a great pick, too, because, you know, City is kind of the antithesis of, you know, pretty much every normal team in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is they don't take the foot off the gas. Even some of the better teams, even a team like your beloved Chelsea, when they go up a goal, they're, wow. they they will still look to kind of control the game, control possession. Are you kidding me? They don't they don't just take their foot off the gas. They light the car on fire and run <laughs> to the hills. I mean, <laughs> pick a different pick I a different team. Go that violent of an imagery, but I I I will let you. This this is a therapy session. This really is a therapy session right now. <laughs> We're getting to the root cause of the anger. We're close, but yeah, but it is one of those things where City doesn't take their foot off the gas, and so a bet where they win both halves. They could go up and go early. You know, a normal team probably sits off a little bit unless they're managed by uh, Marcel Bielsa. You know, they'll sit off, but City is just going to step on your neck. And that's why I kind of like that one. I'm, I'm actually jealous of you digging that one out. Oh, wow. All right. Ah, now I'm smiling. Now I'm happy again. <laughs> uh, all right. So we got three more games to talk about. But before we hit them, we need to take a quick break. Okay, we're back. And we are back and heading over to Crystal Palace, who are in 11th and 24 points, taking on and hosting Liverpool, second and 45 points. This game is Sunday at 9 a.m. Crystal Palace is plus 475. The draw is plus 330. Liverpool is minus 175. Uh, Liverpool at minus half a goal is minus 170. And Crystal Palace is plus 150. So I am going to defer on this for just a moment because uh, you spoke you were a little bit jealous of my last pick. I need to hear your pick in this game because you've been digging into the numbers a little bit and you have a point of view and maybe a little bit of an edge, you feel like, at looking at AFCON absences, not just for top uh, teams like Liverpool, but how a team like Crystal Palace is affected. So why don't you unpack that for me and the audience a little bit? Right. So like like you said, right, when we look at this game, who are the notable absences, right? It's Mane and Sal. Like, that's who you're looking for in this matchup, and then you're trying to see how that's reflected in the line. Um, but the interesting thing is, like, how the smaller guys that don't really put up, you know, even if you're looking at the advanced data, even if you're looking at the expected goal stuff and not even the raw numbers, um, you're going to miss the impact of, of the three guys. I mean, maybe Wilfred, Wilfred Zaha is going to be up there when you look at Palace, but definitely not Jordan Ayew and definitely not... Uh, uh, Chico Coyote, or I definitely butchered that name. <laughs> um, but those two, those three guys are the ones that are gone for Palace. And when you really look at it, you're not going to see 
that up, you know, your Lord and Savior is still there, right? Connor Gallagher's there. He's starting, he's in the starting 11. You get his seven goals, you get his three assists. Um, yeah, so that'll you, be thy name. You know, so you you look at Zaha's three goals, and you're like, oh, that's nothing. You know, you look at Ayu's one goal, that's that's nothing. Like, what are we really missing, right? But there are things that these guys do that, you know, you dig a little bit deeper that I'm not sure get reflected very well in the lines that model or the, the models that make the lines. And, you know, part of it with Zaha is with when you miss him, it's not so much the three goals. It's the fact that he's first on the team and passes into the penalty area. And the most effective shots are in the box. And Zaha's the best of the team at passing the ball to someone in the box. That's a big deal. The other thing, too, is that him and Ayu are incredible and are a big part of how Palace moves the ball into the attacking third. So they don't really do it with like slick passing. They're not like your boy Jorginho where they're just pinging the ball up the field or Rodri at City. They dribble the ball off the pitch. And they're first and second on the team progressive carries, which means the disc taking the ball 10 yards closer to the goal. And that's a big deal. Like if you don't, if you lose players like that, if you lose the ability to get the ball on the attacking third, that's a problem. Another problem is when you try to win the ball back. And not only is IU one of the better attackers in the Premier League at kind of pressuring opponents and pressing from the front, um, uh, but Koyate is second on the team in tackles and interceptions. So he's a key figure in getting the ball back. All those guys are out, and that value though of what they do, despite it not being in front of the goal mouth, still matters to the team. And I think we saw it when Palace played Brighton. So over the season, Palace averages 51% possession per game. Against Brighton, they only had the ball 36% of the time. They average 11 shots per game. Against Brighton, they had three. They averaged 23 touches in the penalty area per game. Against Brighton, they had six. They averaged 143 in the attacking third. Against Brighton, they had 108. So you're seeing in that one match alone, the fall off from missing guys that you kind of look at from their raw totals or even their expected goal totals. And you're like, yeah, they're not missing much. You know, Eduardo's still there. He's basically second on the team expected goals. You know, Connor Gallagher, again, Lord and Savior. So you look at these things and you're like, oh, this should be normal palace. They're not going to expect any fall off. But really, you see a lot that they're losing. And so with a team like Liverpool, yeah, they're going to miss, you know, Sadio Mane and Mo Salah. But like they still have Yota, they, they plug in Firmino, they move um, Oxlade Chamberlain to the attacking line. Trent Alexander Arnold is still fucking incredible at creating chances. Um, so they they can pick up the slack with some of the things that the stars do. But Palace doesn't really have the depth to replace the things that like Zaha and Ayu do kind of in the shadows um, that they don't really get associated with. And I think that's part of where when you look at starting 11s come out and you make bets. That's maybe where you can gain a little bit of an edge is if you can see a little bit of the value lost in some of those guys that are the cogs in the machine and not like the fancy hood ornament, you might be able to get a little bit of an edge because the truth is soccer as a whole has trouble identifying value for guys that do what these guys or for guys that do the things that these guys do really well. We don't really know as a, as a sport, how much that stuff is worth. So the chances are that maybe bookmakers don't either. And so if you can kind of piece it together on your own, you might find some edges in there. 
So you think the Liverpool number is too low in this game? Is that I, I think that my favorite bet of the weekend is a Liverpool clean sheet win at plus 155 because it's a good team doing a good thing against another mediocre club that lost some very, guys that are very important to their attack and they don't have adequate replacements. So you just gave five minutes of passionate math to make your favorite bet the same favorite bet you had literally every week since we started the podcast. Exactly. Like, can I can I get I'm, those five minutes back? I, I expected a different outcome from this equation. But I'm more confident right now in that bet than ever before. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Uh, all where, right. Where so are you at? after my speech? Did I at least like push you in a direction? You did. Uh, I was originally going to take the draw because I didn't think there was value in the minus 175. And I thought there was a lot of value in the plus 330. But hearing you talk about the cogs and the engine and, and the replacement parts and things like that, uh, now I see a little bit of value in the 175. So scrapping the draw, taking Liverpool outright to win because uh, that number might be a little bit undervalued. So you converted at least one person. And you <laughs> had to listen to that whole thing. And I look and, forward uh, to Gallagher scoring twice in a 2-1 Palace win and me just coming on the pod next time with my tail between my legs. So you lose your favorite bet and my favorite player uh, goes ahead and be, be, gets all the glory. I'm going to go ahead and say I don't care about losing my minus 175. <laughs> well, and Michael might be co-hosting the next pod because I'll be too ashamed to show up. <laughs> <laughs> all hammer talk all the time. From Michael Sicoli. Uh, all right. So over 2.5 goals is minus 140. And that's where I'm going to place my prop action. Uh, Crystal Palace has played a ton of wide open games lately. And it sounds like with their AFCON absences, there might even be more of that. Uh, seven of the last eight games have gone over 2.5 and they weren't playing teams with Liverpool's firepower. It's really crazy watching and listening to these games, just how much you hear Trent Alexander-Arnold's name in the final third by the announcers. So, like, I know you look at the stats, and I know he's one of your favorite players because he's so uh, different than almost anybody else who takes the pitch on a weekend. And I know you talk about him all the time, but just, like, forget the underlying numbers. Forget, like, knowing anything about soccer. A fullback is simply not supposed to have his name read out in the attacking third as much as it is as you watch these games. It's it's jarring how involved he is uh, in the action end of the pitch. Um, Jota's doing a great job with Salah and Mane out. TAA is still their main playmaker. Two more assists today as they knocked Arsenal out of the cup. Um I can easily see this being a 2-1, 3-0, 3-1 game. So I'm taking the over on the total goals. Yeah, and I mean, the thing that you kind of got to look at with these absences for Liverpool is not necessarily like better or worse with Liverpool, but different. So in a sense, when they had Mane and Salah and they could roll it out with Yota, who is just absolutely ascending into superstar status, kind of under the radar here, um, they would, they would blow the doors off teams, right? Like you're talking, you'd probably look at this game and be like, oh, this could be four or five goals, right? But without those two, you're, you're kind of looking at a different Liverpool team. It was like the Liverpool team that won the title where they were able to put Fabinho as the six in front of Matip, in front of Van Dyke, and then they just shut games down. They control games. And those are absences to me that almost have a bigger impact on like how you bet this game than Mane or Salah being out. Because what like Fabinho does, what Thiago does, what Jordan Henderson does, what Van Dyke does, those are those have a huge impact on their ability to like win this game and cover the spread. Because without one of those guys, I am way less certain about a clean sheet win. But when I know those guys are there and healthy, 
Liverpool isn't the same, but they can also still really dominate this match. It just won't be that blow the doors off the opponent type of thing that they do when all their really good attackers are there. Cool. Uh, so what prop are you taking? Uh, well, I mean, my prop was the clean sheet at plus 155. Oh, the clean sheet win. And yeah, then the same prop as every week. Scrum. I don't even know why I asked. <laughs> yeah. Basically, with Liverpool, just assume that that's where I'm going unless I tell you otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So let us move down to the next game. Arsenal sitting at sixth on 35 points versus Burnley. 20th with 11 points. Sunday at 9 a.m. You might want to sleep in. Uh, Arsenal is minus 265. The draw is plus 400. Burnley is plus 750. Arsenal minus a goal and a half moves up to plus 120. And Burnley is at minus 135. Um, All right, let's get through this one a little bit quicker. Uh, Arsenal has one goal in four matches so far in 2022. So it's hard to take them on the spread. Uh, But I think this is a great week to pair up some big money line favorites, which you're going to hear me talk about in the five-point pickoff. And Burnley is sinking like a stone straight out of the league. They've shown no evidence they're about to turn things around. If Arsenal drops points to them, I'll chalk up the loss to pure entertainment because it would be so hilarious. But otherwise, <laughs> give me Arsenal at minus 265 to, to win this game. Yeah, I might be a little more aggressive. Um, I mean, I got I should preface this with Burnley hasn't played a match that we really could say is a competitive match since January 8th. So like, we have no idea where the fuck Burnley is at. Like, as far as I'm concerned, like we could see Sean Dice run out of the pitch, uh, rip off his face, like in mission impossible, see that it's actually Diego Simeone. That's been coaching Burnley this entire time, sub himself into the match and score on a one Oh Burnley win. And I would not be surprised. Um, because I just don't know. We, you know, Burnley lost Chris Wood. We talked about kind of like the interesting business thing that went on with Newcastle there. Um, and they've had a bunch of COVID cases. They've been trying to postpone games. As people have joked, uh, they can't get relegated if they don't play if they don't play out the entire season. <laughs> um, but I, I do agree with you. I think in general we have to go with the fact that this is not a great matchup for them with the way that Arsenal has been playing lately. Arsenal plays that really slow, boring possession style match. You know they're going to hold onto the ball. They're pretty good at it. Burnley are not super aggressive in pressing and trying to win the ball back. We know they have trouble scoring. So I think that minus 1.5, I don't know if you have a huge edge at plus 110, but it's just hard to at all put any faith in what Burnley is going to do. Again, nothing could surprise me, but it just seems kind of out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. All right. So we all know that uh, Brett's kind of horse he's going to die on is always the Liverpool clean sheet win. Uh, mine is Arsenal under corners in every single game. Uh, so under 10.5 corners is plus 100. And I'm going to ride this horse into the ground. Arsenal slow down the middle style of play simply depresses the number of corner kicks on both sides that happen during a game. I don't see a scenario where Burnley takes it to him and dictates the style of play. So this game is going to be a slog, which is why you might want to get some extra shut eye. Uh, until the Gunners start living up to their names and show a little bit more flair and gusto, I'm going to take this under over and over again, and I can't believe I'm still getting even money for this bet. Well, I'm going to have a little more fun with this because I'm apparently the fun one that just throws caution in the wind, doesn't give a shit about statistics. Oh, but yeah. 
No, have, I, when, be, when people hear all that mathematical analysis <laughs> just to hear you make the same pick, all they're thinking is, what a fun guy. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> I'm going to get so many fucking invites to par- people's parties. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I'll take a bunch man. of pictures and put them on Instagram for you. I don't even have Yeah, Instagram. I can't wait to see your DMs coming up, man. <laughs> Girls will be sliding in them left and right. <laughs> so for me, the more fun thing that I'm going to do is I kind of joked on Twitter after Chris Wood left that you can make the case that Burnley center backs were their best chance at scoring goals. Guess what? I'm getting James Tarkovsky at plus 1600 to score a goal off a set piece. And I kind of look at this bet as like a hedge, right? If Burnley's going to oh, score a, hedge? a plus 1600 hedge. Oh, I love it. Hear me out. Hear me out. <laughs> if Burnley's going to score, it's probably going to come off a set piece. And so if I'm going to put some money down on minus 1.5 for Arsenal, the only way that that probably doesn't hit is either if Arsenal doesn't score two goals or Burnley scores one. So if Burnley's going to score one, I think that's the most likely place it's going to come from at this point. And the funny thing is, is that Ben Mee, the other center back who has two less shots, but one more goal than Tarkovsky is actually plus 900. So I'm starting to think that there is actually some sneaky good value in this super long term. You need to bet this type of shit like 200 times before you maybe see an edge in your return. But it is really interesting that you have one guy who has less shots at center back at plus 900. You have Tarkovsky at plus 1600 and Burnley is, and this is pretty amazing. They're actually underperforming their set piece XG, which is really weird Usually it goes way far in the other direction because you're talking about a bunch of headed goals that don't have a ton of value. Um, and so I think they're due, man. James Tarkovsky, plus 1,600. Bring it home. I need to hit one of these so bad. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it is an interesting point, right? You know, taking a plus 1,600, plus 1,900, whatever, just betting it every single week and expecting a positive EV in your year-long portfolio return. Uh, I, I mean, I actually subscribe to that. Like I, I think that way about Conte wingbacks, like you know things like shots and, uh, and goals. I think that you're getting better odds there. I think the markets have finally started to adjust a little bit more to uh, Alexander Arnold assists, but I felt great about that number because you're getting plus three hundred, plus four hundred for something he was doing every other game. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if I like it as a hedge, but in terms <laughs> of something that you might want to bet each and every week and uh, just kind of do it, just like Sal always brings up, and I, I agree with him on this, uh, in the football Americano, just take the under on the season long totals, but just take them all. Like just don't don't pick a player and be like, I'm going to think he's going to go under rushing yards this year. Take literally every player under rushing yards, and you're probably going to outperform the stock market at your return because they don't factor injuries in. So Betting something consistently and not expecting a week-to-week to result, but expecting a long-term return, um, you know, I've got no problem with that. And and there is just so much plus EV and the joy that I'm going to feel when this finally <laughs> fucking hits and I pick a center back or like Jao Cancelo to fucking score and he does it. <laughs> yeah, there's another one. Jao Cancelo, weekly props. I mean, we were like, I, I said I'd take them all last week and he walked away with an assist out of that game. Uh, so speaking of that game, that brings us to Chelsea, third at 44 points versus Tottenham, fifth at 36 points in a London derby. Sunday at 11.30 a.m., uh, Chelsea is minus 150. The draw is plus 295. Tottenham is plus 450. Chelsea at minus 0.5 is still minus 150. Tottenham moves up to plus 130. All right, my turn on the couch. Um 
<laughs> Chelsea is really frustrating right now, though I admit it's just part of the Chelsea experience. Uh, you're riding the roller coaster and you can't really complain about going down the hill. Um, I do have to get one thing off my chest, though, as long as I'm sitting on this couch. Ziek really, really rubbed me the wrong way this past week. His refusal to even acknowledge he scored against Brighton made me irrationally mad. Just to make this all about me for a second, <laughs> there is... There's nothing better as a sports fan than the pure moment of exultation when something big happens to your team. Whether it's a base hit that brings the lead run in, a TD that comes from an unexpected place on the field, a deep three that ties the game, or Deli Alley doing something that positively contributes for once. Something that unexpectedly happens that you get to react to is why we actually watch sports. It's why we spend thousands of dollars on tickets and merch with money that could be better spelled elsewhere. It's why I spend thousands of dollars of obsessing over something that has actual, no tangible, direct benefit to my family. And in that moment against Brighton, Ziek robbed me of that feeling. His reaction was so crazy, I actually thought the ball must have hit the side net because nobody would react that way if the ball had actually gone in. I felt the same disappointment that he appeared to feel. I felt no joy, just this confusion. And without the joy, what's the point? Uh, and what he's disappointed in, I'm not actually sure. He's received a ton of games lately, and he frankly doesn't deserve it. He loses the ball repeatedly. His touch is way off. His decision-making is crazy late. Like, we as the fans are actually the ones who should be pouting watching this crap. So I'm not saying he needs to turn into Beyonce out there, but fuck, man, a fist bump? A smile? Something? He immediately just turned around and started arguing with his teammates again. It sucked. And look, we went through this once before with Nicholas Anelka, Anelka who was so surly. His nickname was literally La Sulk. And he, he wasn't loads of fun either. But that guy contributed 97 goals plus assists. It was a key part of a title winning teams. And not even pouting, pouting can ruin a trophy lift. So you compare this to somebody like Timo and like, Look, I might make fun of Timo, and he might not be able to hit the target, but we continue to support him because he works so damn hard on the field, and then he works so much, he works almost as hard off the field to connect with fans. He gets it. So my jokes for him come from a place of love. I cannot say the same about Ziek, and it might be time for the quote-unquote wizard to follow a yellow brick road to the softer league where he belongs. I can tell you that after that rant, uh, Aaron Ramsdale still might invest in this podcast. Hakeem Zayich will not be doing that. Good, good. Because what's he gonna do? Hand me the money and then yell at me. Um, so after the game, after I got that off my chest, Chelsea's problem right now is a lack of focus, concentration, and sharp sharpness because they're playing way too damn much. And Tuchel is a demanding tactician. They cannot be cranked up to eleven all the time, which is what we kind of expect from them. So they are switching off later in matches. They're taking their foot off their gas, lighting the car on fire, running away, and they're doing it over and over again, which is why they keep giving up leads. But they have enough of reserve for big teams, and they never relax against them. And we've seen that. I mean, like, I thought they were going to get crushed by Liverpool. You heard me on this podcast saying, what was the argument for them? And they, you know, willed out a 2-2 draw. Uh, Manchester City is running everybody off the field, like, 
Yes, they did dominate the first half against Chelsea, but it was still a 1-0 scoreline that came from a magical moment from one of the best players in the Premier League who took advantage of Kepa's blind spot, which is any ball he's kicked from outside the box, <laughs> which is exactly what we talked about last week. I mean, we gave out, we literally gave out De Bruyne out-of-the-box goal at like plus 600, and then bam, that was the difference in the game because he just can't see the goddamn thing. Uh, we're, I don't just, know why. We're, we're just fucking profits. Let's just leave it at that. Um, but you know they just took care of uh, Tottenham twice in the in the cup. They knocked them out of that, and they don't switch off in games that they get up for, and they get up for big games like this. So despite them giving up these leads over and over again, despite the sky falling according to every paper in London and throughout Europe, in this particular match, give me Chelsea to win at minus one fifty. Ooh. Well, first off, it was just very hard to follow that energy right now. <laughs> but I, I, I kind of, I mean, you watch them week in, week out. So I will always defer to you as the Chelsea expert because my, 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 uh, I'm pushing my glasses up here. My numbers don't always tell me, you know, the week in, week out experience watching Chelsea, especially cup matches that, no offense, I have no, no incentive to watch whatsoever to watch Chelsea play a cup match. But, the one thing I would push back on a little bit is I do think that what maybe we're seeing with Chelsea is not so much a motivational type thing, but they're missing a lot with like Reese James and with Ben Shilwell. Like those two as your wingbacks put you in a really good spot. Cause when you play a wingback in a back three system, you don't have anybody in front of you to help cover that side of the field. Like wingbacks have to move up and down. And Marcus Alonso is not only one of my least favorite players to watch in the Premier League, but I also think he's verging on wash territory. And when you rely on a guy like that, when you have to play with like Azpilicueta as the other wing back, or you play a back four where Alonso is a fullback and Azpilicueta is a fullback, it's just leading to these really weird kind of lineups. It's it's they're, They look sticky. They look like they can't control the game as well as they used to. And I think that's a big part of it. I do think that with each passing week, we're kind of seeing that growing thing of is Rom really a great fit with the way that Tuchel's trying to play? Um, and I think another part of it too is like Kai Havertz is really good at something, but it's not the attacking stuff. Like he's one of the best defensive forwards in the Premier League, um, but he's not great at goal scoring. He hasn't been healthy. He hasn't seen the pitch. You know, Werner has still struggled finishing. Tuchel made a weird thing where he subbed him on in their last match and like had him play as like a winger, like out near the touchline was definitely not the thing that you want Timo Werner to do. Um, you know, and Mason Mount has kind of weirdly been yo-yoed in and out of the lineup. So they're just in a weird place, right? Like they're just, they're in a weird spot. Yeah. Look, uh, I, I talk about them switching off and giving up leads. Yes. The biggest problem they have right now is Reese James and Chilwell are not playing. I mean, that that I absolutely agree with. I'm not saying this is binary. It's one or the other. It's both. Because uh, Reese James, as somebody who watches every match, was arguably the most influential player on Chelsea. Certainly the most argue, uh, the most influential influential player in the attacking half, even though he was doing it from a wide position. I mean, I think the only like competitor before he went down is you'd have to – uh, say it's somebody like Thiago Silva or somebody in the defense that was actually having a good year with Conte playing himself. My, but like my they boy Kovacic, the can, can we get a shout out to my boy Kovacic? Come on now. Yeah, no, no, no. Kova always always gets his flowers. Um, but he was he was really, really, really important to the team, and so was Chilwell. And like 
yes, Alon Slow is definitely on the wrong side of his career, <laughs> and he's Did no he longer have a right the side of his career. Where was wow, Alonzo's right side now. of his career? <laughs> Uh, probably under can Conte. A, can we do a side uh, podcast on the right side of Alonso's career? I want to hear about this one. Yeah, yeah, no, it's <laughs> going to be a very limited series. It might just be half an episode. Um, but, um, but yes, so yes, they are they are definitely missing those guys. Unfortunately, they got to keep playing yeah. and they got to keep going at it. And this week, I know Conte relies heavily on his uh, on on his width. But like he's, they're not playing Trent Alexander Arnold. They're not playing Jao Cancelo. Like I might be nailing the in my own coffin here, but I just don't fear those guys in a top top level match uh, all that much. And like those guys against Watford, yeah, I think they're going to cause a lot of problems. Or you know, a mid table team. But I guess I don't fear them the same way that I look at you know Liverpool or Manchester City's. Uh, options in, in that part of the pitch and think they're going to be able to fully exploit the weakness that you're pointing out. But like, I don't want to drag this into a Lukaku discussion. So let's save that for February. <laughs> uh, Cause that's going to push us well past the hour mark. Um, I do want to quickly turn over to the other side of the field because while the Spurs are our rival, are we seeing the birth of something special over there right now in the partnership between Kane and Conte? He looked so lively against Leicester and while everybody is, you know, kind of celebrating Bergvine and that miracle finish that was one of the craziest results, if you didn't, if you didn't see it, I mean, please go back and, and watch the end of the last Tottenham game where they had the latest come-from-behind victory in Premier League history. Um, it was really Kane's inch-perfect pass that set up the miracle winner just as much as the finish. Plus, he scored earlier in the match. Plus, he was a threat the entire time. He appears to be a world-beater again. It's not like this is something new under Conte. Diego Costa, Romelu Lukaku, and many others were never better than when Conte was their manager. So are we really seeing the best we're ever going to see out of Kane over the next 18 months before uh, Conte fires him over text? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's interesting, too, because we, we've seen two different versions of Spurs under Conte now. Is we've seen his 5-3-2 that he went with a lot in Inter, and we've also seen the 3-4-3. And as part of it's been injury has kind of dictated how he's played. Um but it doesn't matter because Kane has been completely like rejuvenated under Conte. And so the, the, this is kind of fun. And it's more just like Nuno was just so terrible for them. And I just want to point this out in the number and the numbers unfold this. So Kane has played nine matches under Nuno and he's played nine matches under Conte. Under Nuno, he had 22 shots in nine matches. Under Conte, he had 38. Under Nuno, he had one non penalty goal in nine matches. Under Conte, he has three. <laughs> Under Nuno, he had two two expected not two non penalty expected goals in nine matches. Under Conte, he has six. Under Nuno, he averaged 0. 0.09 xg per shot. So basically, is each shot that he took at about a nine percent chance to go in. Under Conte, that's bumped all the way up to 0. 0.15, and he generally has just been so good. I mean, like. We, we, I watched them in their last match and he's up top with Lucas Mora, like Lucas Mora. And you don't even notice that Kane is up top with Lucas Mora because he had 10 fucking shots against Leicester and he completely controlled the dominated that match with a, a midfield of like Oliver Stipp and Harry Winks, you know, and Emerson on the right as a right wing back. Um, he is definitely reborn to a point where I think this is going to make this match more competitive than it should be given the sum total of parts on Spurs. 
Um, because Conte has clearly found a way to unlock a really, really good striker that is not that maybe we thought with the ankle injury and the compressed season, he was starting to slide downhill. Kane's not done yet. And it's very clear for these nine matches that there's still a lot left in the tank. And so between Chelsea being kind of meh and this new Harry Kane, I'm like kind of bullish on the plus 0.5 on Spurs. I mean, I'm going to maybe hear about this next week, but yeah, I think this is a game where it's just going to be really hard for them to pull away. And you're always that one Harry Kane strike away from tying a match. It seems now. Um, I mean, shit, you know, he took 10 shots against Leicester. He took seven against Liverpool. So it's not like, you know, he was beating up on these bum teams. You know, these are two top half, top half the table clubs. Liverpool obviously is going to probably end up finishing second in the league this year. Um, and that's, that's why with Kane, I don't care what the fucking number is. He's underperforming his XG. We're talking about one of the best finishers in the world is underperforming his expected goal total. And he's plus 200 to score in this match. I told me, can you take out a second mortgage and loan me some money, man? Like, <laughs> I'll fucking put some shit down on this. Yeah, but I, I'm going to be betting basically Harry Kane, you know, anytime goal scorer pretty much. And this week it's plus 200. So throw that shit down. All right. So you're taking the Spurs uh, to either win or draw, and you're taking Harry Kane as your anytime goal scorers. And like, I got I to gotta say, as much as I hate Spurs, I can't hate either one of those. I. I worried I'm looking a little bit through blue colored glasses, but then I look through those glasses and try to think about the last time that uh, Tottenham actually beat Chelsea and I smile (laughs) and place my place my wager. Uh, I will say, though, that I will take the under 2.5 at minus 115 on the total number of goals. Uh, Like I said earlier, I don't expect Chelsea to switch off. And when they are on, they are still strong candidates to hold the other side completely. Harry Kane's form notwithstanding. And plus, like, who's Tottenham's second-hand threat in this game? Like, their midfield is uh, kind of in disarray right now. I don't know if Sun's going to be back. But playing more up top certainly doesn't scare me. And so keeping the number of total goals down, and it's not like Chelsea's attack is clicking on all cylinders, uh, makes a whole lot of sense to me right now. If you do want to fade me, uh, the Tottenham bets I, I like, if you want to, if, if you believed in uh, – Chelsea kind of giving up goals and going into the international break in complete disarray and two weeks of Tuchel's getting fired stories. If you want to follow that narrative, uh, Tottenham to score the last goal is plus 195, which I like a lot if you think this is going to go the other way because they could draw and still get uh, you still win that bet and you get better odds. Um, Tottenham to win either half is plus 180. They get a goal like. See if Chelsea fights back or not. They're going to go on either half. I'm not sure Chelsea has that fight in them, given what I just watched against uh, Brighton last week. And Tottenham plus 130 to score in the second half. If Chelsea does switch off yet again and give up yet another second half goal, whether they have the lead or not. So I'm taking the under on the total goals because I think the six score lines it gives me 0-0, 1-0 either side, 1-1 or 2-0 either side are the six most likely results. And I think I'm getting good numbers on that. Well, and the other thing that you got to factor that in too is that there's a very good chance. I mean, Tuchel's been playing a little bit more with a four that uh, six center backs could be on the pitch. Uh, that's not great <laughs> for goals. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, he's actually started playing Saar out at left wing back because we don't have any coverage. So you say six center backs might be on the pitch. That I mean, there literally might be six center backs on the pitch and just <laughs> playing different out of position. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be certainly interesting. All right, so let's wrap this up with uh, the five-pipe pickoff. 
Unfortunately, last week, COVID reared its ugly head and wiped out the game, the North London Derby between Tottenham and Arsenal, where we had most of our collective action. Uh, I kind of wish COVID had wiped out Coutinho and Brentford's goalkeeper so I could have cashed a whole lot of tickets rather than having those guys kind of turn my winning bets into losers really late in the matches over some crap, but I'm not bitter about it. Um, Brent lost his only bet. I managed to win Liverpool with a clean sheet, ironically, after the crap I gave him earlier. So I am up two pints to zero going into what is the last week of January because we have international break coming up and then um, the FA break in February. So this will be decisive, Brett. This is for all the marbles. We talked about it before the show. Mikey Meatballs made a ruling. And we are going to allow uh, both sides to reinvest the bets from last week that were wiped out by that game. So I get to make six bets this week, and Brett make, gets to make nine since he had four on Tottenham Arsenal last week. Uh, I am going to take the following to try to win this month and uh, go ahead and wet my whistle early in February. <laughs> I am going to take Arsenal and Man City along with Liverpool to win or draw. So Arsenal, Man City to win, Liverpool to win or draw. I probably, after Brett's passionate uh, pitch, should change this to a Liverpool win, but I'm going to stick with it. That three-way parlay gets a plus 105. So three good teams to do good things uh, you get plus odds on. I'm going to put two pints on that. Uh, Arsenal-Burnley under the 10.5 corners at plus 100. Give me two pints on that horse. Uh, Chelsea at minus 150. Give me minus one on that. And I'm buying a drink for a friend this week. Uh, our newest hammer is going to get West Ham, Mikey Meatballs, plus half goal is minus 105 for one pint to get a draw or a win versus Manchester United. What are you going to put your money on, Brett? Oh, so much to lose this week. Uh, let's uh, let's start with the let's start with what's expected. Uh, there's going to be four pints going on the Liverpool clean sheet win plus 155. I mean, we know it's coming. Just need to get it out of the way. Um, then I'm going to be a little bit more aggressive with kind of a line that I think there might be a greater edge than maybe there is. Um, but I'm going to put two points on city winning two nothing uh, for the exact score line at plus 650. And then my boy, Harry Kane plus 200. There's two points going on that. And we got to have some fun. James Tarkovsky, come on down <laughs> one pint at plus 1600. Somebody score a fucking set piece when I bet it. Oh my yeah, god! Somebody so, fucking score on a set piece, James. Do me a solid. I want to humiliate Toby. I want to lose all my bets, but still win because James Tarkovsky scores on a set piece against Arsenal for one pint. Those are my nine. Michael, I'd like to change my bets. I'd just like to not bet anything, <laughs> and he's still gonna have zero. So this is like in Final Jeopardy where you just leave a dollar and now you're gonna win. <laughs> uh, I feel pretty good about my chance to win in January with what my maniac friend just laid out for him. Uh, all right. So uh, international break next week, FA break after that. We are unlikely to be back for a couple of weeks, although maybe we'll come back for the midweek action mid-February. Who knows? Um, when we do come back, we are going to start having all of our other extra points friends on to pick their favorite team. So this gives you plenty of time to go back and listen to those podcasts where we expel the virtues of which team should be selected as uh, their and your favorite. Uh, so that's your, your homework assignment if you dare to accept it. Uh, Sal will be first and Football Americana will just be wrapping up. So it'll be time to turn their attention to some real football.
in the meantime, we hope you enjoy the games and come back uh, in a couple of weeks for our usual interchange of terrible advice backed by expert analysis. And thank you very much. A bonus of soon. a therapy session. <laughs> no it? charge because it's no money's exchanged because you're getting exactly what it's worth. <laughs> All right, y'all. Take care, everybody. <laughs>